Well, hello. Welcome to Tuesday. And today's episode of Enough for Today for January the 17th. Thanks for joining me, my friends. And uh, we're in Psalm 69. And this has been a wonderful psalm. We, we left off yesterday talking uh, um, David going, actually this messianic part of the psalm, verses 18 to 21. And this kind of closes out the paragraph in the psalm where David is praying for God to draw near and to preserve him, deliver him, and be with him and protect him and empathize and sympathize and enter into and know what he's going through. And we talked about yesterday how the final part of this is, quite frankly, exactly what Jesus did. He knows my reproach. He entered into it. He experienced it, the shame, the dishonor. And then these verses 20, 21 um, become prophetic of the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's why we call this a messianic psalm. Now the psalm changes directions. And we come to this paragraph that has sharp teeth. This is a profound and a powerful paragraph. So I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, This is the imprecatory part of this psalm. And we'll break it down a little bit. Let their table become a snare before them. So now he's talking about the enemies. And you need to remember, um, this is going to confuse you if you don't separate this, okay? Where there is repentance, there is mercy and grace. But where there is willful unrepentance, willful abject unrepentance, then there's only one option remaining for God, and that is justice. God will not forgive those who repudiate and spit on his forgiveness. He will not, he cannot justly forgive someone that will not admit guilt, that will spit in his face, defy him, tooth and nail, to the death, unrepentant unbelief. And it's hard for us to imagine, it's hard for those that believe to imagine someone being so defiant against God that even when they see him and understand that he is God and Lord and that he did die, even then they will defy defy and resist and reject. You see, this has already happened. This is exactly what the religious leaders of Jesus' day did. They knew who he was. They watched him heal thousands and thousands and thousands of people. We see vignettes in the Gospels, but Jesus healed so many more people than the Gospels say. There are so many passages that say he healed all of the sick and all of the halt and all the blind. He healed everyone everywhere he went. He was doling out lavish supernatural intervention. And the Pharisees and religious leaders saw it and knew it, witnessed it, heard it. They knew this was God. They knew this was the Messiah. And they wanted him dead. Unrepentant unbelief. Abject uh, defiance. Staunch. Unconvincible. Okay? Unconvincible. That's what you need to kind of lock in. What does God do if he goes, if he exhausts? his efforts to convince the unconvincible. And they stand strong and firm in their unrepentance. There remains no more sacrifice for sin, okay? There's no alternatives. Uh, Jesus is it. So when somebody rejects Jesus, ultimately, finally, unrepentantly, stiff-necked, 
no way uh, they're going to turn. And only God knows when somebody reaches that moment. But what does God do? There's only one option left, and that is justice. He's a righteous judge. And if he doesn't take action, then he's not righteous, and he's not a good judge, and he's, he's not just. So it would violate his holiness if he does nothing on unrepentant unbelief. And so you have to understand, his first position throughout the ages has been mercy, grace, reaching out in love. But when that love is repudiated for the final time, his, he will not always strive with man. That's what God said. His mercy is long-suffering, but eventually he must bring judgment. He must bring justice. And this is a prayer for that final justice. And so in that sense, it's a holy prayer. It's a good prayer. Our heart is never to pray this on reachable people, okay? But to the degree that God understands that someone has passed the point of convincibility, uh, then, then this is a righteous prayer to pray. And it's not a prayer that I pray for vengeance for me, but it is a prayer that David is praying that God will win and, and exalt himself above his enemies and bring them down swiftly. Okay, well, I, I didn't mean to say all that before reading it, but here we are. Let's read it. Let their table become a snare before them. So where they're safe, let them be trapped. And that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. See, the second half of the verse parallels and explains the first half. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. You understand what David is praying here. Um, He's not saying, can I pour out my wrath upon them? Can I take out my vengeance upon them? He's still putting the care of all of this in God's hands, but he's praying for justice and justice is a good desire. Don't, don't think that it's um, inappropriate. It's not unforgiving. If you've been wronged, it's not unforgiving for you to ask God to bring about justice. Now, you should want salvation for your oppressor. Uh, but where there's unrepentance, um, where there is no turning, then you should want justice. And God will bring it. This is an encouragement. If we let it be, it's an encouragement to us in our hurts and in our, in our dark desperate world of of oppression verse 25 let their habitation be desolate and let none dwell in their tents don't let others be influenced by them don't let others be oppressed by them verse uh, 26 for they persecute him whom thou hast smitten they persecute him whom thou hast smitten God, you've allowed me to to bear this smiting reproach, this chastening, but they have added to your work with persecution. That's an interesting thing that David did there. And they talked to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Uh, They magnify the grief. They mock the grief. They scorn the grief. They don't have a reverence to the work that God's doing through the woundedness that he's permitting so isn't it interesting how David sees the, the wounding as on some level a work of God, but on another level, um, the doing of the wicked ones. And I, th- this speaks to some of our confusion sometimes. Like when I got cancer, 
people would say, I would say, God gave me cancer. And sometimes somebody would rebuke me for saying, God didn't give you cancer. You know, no, God would never give you cancer. It's his will to heal you. Well, yeah, it's his will to heal me, but he's providential, right? And so he at least permitted it. And I have no problem with saying God allowed me or God gave me or God led me into cancer. And it's the same sense as this verse. Um, if I'm wounded, I want to be wounded by God because then I know that it's a loving wound. It's a gracious wound. It's a growing wound. It's a chastening. It's a deepening. It's a, it's a purposeful wound. It's a fruitful wound. If I'm just wounded, uh, then there's no value to it. If I'm going to be wounded, if I'm going to grieve, I want grief to have a value. I want it to have an outcome. Um, so I hope, I hope I'm getting, I'm hope, I hope you catch that. Let their habitation be desolate. Let them, I'm sorry, I'm, I backed up. Uh, they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. There's the human factors uh, of the oppression and the, war, uh, the wound and the hurt, and God will bring justice to that. But there's the providential factor and the permission of God, and he, don't, he only does good things. He only allows painful seasons to do and to produce good things. That's the very definition of chastening. Um, so verse 27, the prayer continues, add iniquity unto their iniquity and let them not come into thy righteousness. Don't let them experience um, your grace. Add iniquity to their iniquity. They spit in the face of, of, of justice and goodness and righteousness. Add iniquity to their iniquity. Verse 28, let them be, ooh, this sounds tough. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Now, this is a bit, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a bit hyperbole because someone that is the, at this place uh, will be written out of the book. Revelation makes that very clear. Um, unrepentance will keep them from experiencing God's righteousness. So in essence, David is praying already the will of God. It is God's will that those who do not believe will not receive his forgiveness, will be blotted out of the book of life and will not come into his righteousness. Otherwise, corruption continues forever and evil continues forever uh, in heaven and in eternity and in the new kingdom. So David is saying, God, uh, make the, the new kingdom airtight from sin and evil and wickedness. Verse 29, but... I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. What a contrast. The powerful be brought down. Uh, the, the poor and the sorrowful be saved and exalted and lifted up. So we've covered a lot of kind of heavy ground today, thick ground. But think on this. We've talked about justice. And take comfort in this. You belong to a God who is long-suffering in mercy, long in mercy. But when that mercy, when time is up, he is also swift in goodness and righteousness and justice. And you can rest in his justice. Happy Tuesday. We'll see you tomorrow.